Welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I am Ramita Ayer, research analyst at the institute. The global space industry is currently estimated to be worth $350 billion and is projected to grow to more than a trillion dollars over the next 20 years. The emergence of a growing space economy has unsurprisingly also led to crowding and competition in space. Among other countries, India has recently been rapidly expanding its space program, undertaking a series of steps to increase its capability and presence. To discuss India's space policy, landscape and strategy, as well as the broader regional implications, I have with me Mr. Aditya Ramanathan, an Associate Fellow at the Takshashila Institution. Aditya, welcome to South Asia Chat. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So India's space industry has for long been under the public sector. But in recent times, the Modi government has taken several steps to liberalize and give a push to the domestic space industry. We saw in October 2021, uh, the government launched the Indian Space Association, which looks at bringing in critical technology and investment into the country, alongside the formulation of a policy framework. Can you help our listeners understand the evolution of the Indian space industry and why the step to privatize has been taken now? Sure. Uh, yeah. The uh, To address why this step to privatize has been taken now, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the global context. So I would say that uh, broadly, you have the global context of the emergence of a private space industry. You have, like you mentioned, an emerging space sector within India. Uh, and uh, then there are finally the strategic implications of the rise of space economy. You know, what does it mean for re- relative power in international relations? Uh, on the global space economy, you know, like you pointed out, uh, the there's a Morgan Stanley estimate that the global space economy is worth about $350 billion. And that was from a few years back. And uh, in about 20 years, it's estimated to be worth about a trillion dollars of which you know whether or not that estimate comes true. What's what's really interesting to me about that is that about most of that new growth, so about forty percent of that estimated one trillion, uh, is expected to come from satellite internet, which is entirely private sector driven. So uh, this is a sector where the expansion is likely to come from the private sector ri- rather than uh, than from governments. Uh, and we're seeing this most evidently in the U.S. to a much less extent in in China. SpaceX is obviously the most uh, high-profile example of uh, private space sector. Uh, And what you see with SpaceX, as well as with other companies, uh, Northrop and so on, is that they are essentially taking over a lot of older NASA roles in the US. So they're replacing the space shuttle, for example, with their own spacecraft. And they've taken over the role of, for example, ferrying crews and cargoes to the International Space Station. And in the future, in fact, NASA wants to replace the International Space Station itself with uh, a number of uh, private privately run, privately manufactured, produced, and even launched space stations. And the idea being in the US uh, that you create a self-sustaining low Earth orbit economy, uh, which would in theory allow NASA to focus on more ambitious programs, uh, you know, both to, to the moon and beyond interplanetary machine, missions and so on. Uh, and, uh, you know, any if you're a policymaker in India, you are watching this and, you know, thinking about what it means for you. Uh, in, you know, India's own uh, space sector is supposed to be worth only about something like 2% of the global space economy. Uh, how you estimate that <laughs> is, is is very tricky. But yeah, it's it's a fairly small share. 
and you broadly have like three types of companies in India. So you have the established vendors, uh, you know, that have been supplying to ISRO, uh, like Valchandnagar Industries, Larson and Tubro. You have smaller companies like uh, Centum Electronics that have been making uh, electronics for rockets really for the last three decades. Uh, and then you have transnational companies and new industries, of which I think OneWeb, uh, where Bharati owns a major stake, is, is actually the sole example in India right now, but more such companies could prop up. And finally, you have the new space startups. Uh, there may be up to 120 of these. Uh, and a lot of these 120 are mostly in the down in, are in the downstream sector. So you could place, you, you could divide uh, space companies into up, so-called upstream and downstream. Up, upstream are the people involved in actually getting rockets into space, building satellites and so on. Downstream are people back on earth, uh, monitoring satellites, uh, you know, doing providing ground services, doing image and data processing and analysis and so on. So in a country like India, you will find naturally a lot of uh, new startups gravitating to the area where there is reg- lower regulatory burden uh, like uh, the downstream. And uh, so you, you see this clear emergence of uh, an Indian space sector. And if you're a policymaker in Delhi, you are thinking, you know, I need to look for new avenues of economic growth in the country. The space sector is potentially a promising candidate. Uh, you know, it holds the promise of both indig- indigenously developed technology as well as transfers of technology. Uh, it can provide employment generation. And it also leverages uh, existing uh, strengths of India, such as uh, information technology, IT-enabled services. Uh, now, and finally, there are the strategic implications, right? So, if if you think if you define space power as the ability of a state to leverage its space-related activities to wield uh, power or, or influence in international politics, then, and if you consider that space power is going to become an important part of comprehensive national power, uh, then it means that uh, you don't want to be left behind. And, you know, space power really incorporates, you know, it's sort of like maritime power. It's an expansive definition. It incorporates commercial, military, and space and scientific activities in space. And uh, you do not want to be left behind in this. You want to be a player. You don't want to be consigned to irrelevance. So yeah, I think those are broadly the drivers of privatization. Now, of course, uh, you know, actually getting that off the ground has been uh, more complicated than uh, perhaps we, we would have liked. Uh, so you have had, for example, the introduction of a space activities bill in November 2017, but that, you know, that bill had uh, some problems and, you know, I'm sure people from the space industry will have more to say about it than me, uh, but, uh, you know, f- fundamentally that bill... Uh, did continue to see the government as the central driving force for all space activity in India. Uh, There's a lot of regulatory burden, a lot of licensing involved, disclosure requirements, uh, and uh, the bill uh, makes it very easy for a space company to commit offenses, which is again, uh, you know, it's an open, basically it's open season for harassment, that type of provisions, uh, you know, especially in a country like India. and the bill also essentially absorbed the government of any accountability of its own, which is, again, uh, it, it encourages uh, uh, basically the creation of harassment or other sort of regulatory burdens for companies involved in the space sector. Now, to be fair, I, I think policymakers in Delhi are very well aware of these shortcomings of the bill. And uh, so they are likely to incorporate changes to it. Uh, while it's been a few years, what we've seen since then is, of course, uh, the uh, development, firstly, of uh, an autonomous uh, 
regulator for the space industry, uh, sort of in the spirit of uh, try for telecom and so on. So you have uh, what's called Indian National Space Promotion and Authorization Center or in space as this autonomous regulator. This is an important step. And in fact, uh, this uh, we had, uh, at Takshashila had actually uh, advocated for the creation of such a regulator. And we're, we're really happy to see some of our ideas incorporated into it. Now, since the creation of InSpace in 2020, uh, the, uh, the impression, at least for us on the outside, is that uh, things have slowed down. Uh, but, you know, that's typical in India. You in, in India, you do see these things moving in fits and starts. So we do hope to see uh, movement in, in the near future. Uh, the other thing, uh, as you mentioned, Ramita, is the creation of uh, Indian Space Association. In, ISPA or ISPA is supposed to be an, an industry body uh, or the prime industry body representing the space industry. Uh, there are other existing uh, bodies like Satellite Industry Association and so on. But, uh, you know, the fact that the prime minister that uh, then uh, CDS of the armed forces uh, were there at the uh, inauguration of ISPA, I think is a sign of how seriously the government takes uh, the space industry. And, and it's perhaps an indication that this industry body will have the ear of the government, which is a great sign for the private sector. Right. So privatization comes at a time when people are more dependent on space for their daily activities than they've ever been before. We're also witnessing the Indian space tech startup industry face an unprecedented boom. So while spacefaring has been identified as a profitable venture, there are also concerns over the risks involved in it. Can you tell us about what these risks from commercialization that a country like India faces? Sure. Uh, I think for India, it's 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 almost early days yet uh, to worry about the risks of commercialization of India's space sector. In fact, I, I you know I I'm afraid that we keep talking about the risks. Uh, we'll we'll basically uh, have you know it'll slow down deregulation of the sector. But of course, like you pointed out, space is a heavy re- heavily regulated sector, and there are clear clearly some good reasons for it. Uh, the, you know the very fact, unlike say with the IT industry, you're actually launching objects into space, for example, uh, you know, uh, there are uh, clearances required from everything from the DGCA, which is the aviation regulator, uh, to the Explosives Act in India, uh, you know, for storing and using of propellants. Uh, And then there are regulations on space itself, both domestic and international. So, uh, you know, at the international level, uh, the one, so there are broadly five laws that govern uh, use of outer space and most of these were created around a decade a period of about a decade from about 1967 to 1979 so there's the outer space treaty uh, there's the rescue and return uh, agreement there's a liability convention a res- registration convention and a moon agreement which didn't have many takers for it but india was one of them uh, and the one that concerns uh, uh, an indian regulator is the liability convention because uh, this Law was put down at a time when there was no uh, commercial space industry, right? The idea of private space sector was essentially science fiction at that time. And uh, so the uh, so what it does is it basically makes a nation state uh, liable for any damage, for example, that an object in space might cause. So if, if a satellite from India collides with a satellite from, uh, say, uh, France, uh, then India is liable uh, for the damage caused. And, you know, if debris from that satellite goes and hits other satellites, then, you know, India is liable for all all of that damage. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, similarly, if a satellite or a spacecraft or something were to crash on Earth, uh, you know, debris were to hurt somebody or destroy property, again, that's, you know, that the, the liability, liability lies ex- exclusively with the nation state. Now, if you have a private satellite up there, how do you calculate that liability? Uh, how does government enforce that liability? If it's a transnational corporation, how do you assign it? Uh, what are the there are what are the limits on the liability? You know, so there are some, uh, I think, very valid insurance concerns there that an Indian government would have. I think the the uh, the more immediate, broader concern uh, is, uh, like you mentioned, it's it's just that uh, the orbits and especially the the low Earth orbit. Uh, is getting really crowded. Uh, so you have uh, well, thousands of satellites in space. Uh, you have uh, very unclear what we would call end-of-life protocols. So you have something like 4,500 uh, satellites. Uh, you have tens of thousands of pieces of trackable debris. There is also smaller debris, typically less than 10 centimeters in size, which we really can't track. And all of this is, uh, you know, it's hurtling in space. And uh, if you uh, are, if you're going to, for example, put up these huge constellations of satellite internet uh, for satellite internet, for example, you have hundreds of satellites going up. Uh, it's going to make space a lot more crowded. And if you have this overcrowding in space, if satellites, uh, you know, at the end of their life, if they're not being deorbited and re-entering the Earth's atmosphere harmlessly, uh, and if they're going to be sitting there as space junk. Uh, you do create uh, problems with, uh, you know, uh, basically you create risks uh, for uh, for future space activity. So who's responsible then, uh, you know, for clearing this junk? Uh, if you create junk in space, uh, you know, uh, what are your, uh, you know, what are your responsibilities? Uh, I, can you be held accountable for, you know, uh, for, for example, if 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 you're a private company and you have uh, you know, non-functioning satellites sitting up there in space occupying uh, valuable orbits, uh, are you liable? And if one of those uh, satellites were to, you know, in, as its orbits degrade, were to hit another satellite, uh, are you responsible? Is the country in which you're incorporated responsible? There are all these concerns around uh, uh, commercialization. Uh, there are, uh, back on Earth also, you do have some concerns. For example, uh, there will be concerns inevitably about... Uh, concerning ITAR, basically about uh, weapons proliferation. Uh, so, you know, especially when you are uh, sharing technology with other countries, uh, you know, these concerns are necessarily going to come up. And finally, uh, even if you're a downstream company in India, uh, analyzing data uh, f- from another country, uh, it's, uh, you know, other other countries might not want to share that data with you. Uh, so you know there are all these concerns that inevitably crop up, uh, crop up. Sorry, uh, when you have uh, a private space industry. I want to focus a bit more on one of the things that you mentioned. That's uh, space power. What are the likely implications of the growth of the space sector on aspects of power and security in international relations? Um, what do globally disruptive events like the Russia-Ukraine war mean for competition in space? And how does this affect a country like India? Sure. Yeah. So space power, uh, definitely the two most important components for me are the commercial aspect and and the military aspect. Uh, And uh, I think something like the Russia-Ukraine war uh, impinges on both. So firstly, like I said, uh, you know, space power is 
both your ability to use space, that's primarily that, but it's also potentially your ability to deny the use of space or uh, to others. Uh, so what you're seeing uh, is, is basically space is going to become one of the areas of high technology co competition between major powers. And it's something in which uh, India will want to be a player of its own right and build its own leverage. Uh, in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, you know, we're already seeing some clear effects on India. So, for example, India is heavily dependent on uh, Russia for its Gaganya and human spaceflight project. That is almost certain to be disrupted, uh, both because of, you know, the chaos within Russia's own space agency uh, because of sanctions, but also because those sanctions can impinge on India's ability uh, to cooperate with Russia. Similarly, uh, uh, India is dependent on Ukraine for its... Uh, for work on developing its semi-cryogenic engine. And uh, that is also likely to get disrupted. In fact, uh, apparently one of the facilities in which these uh, rockets are developed in Ukraine has been damaged in, during the course of this war. Uh, besides this, uh, there are also, I think the war itself holds some clear uh, concerns and, and, and holds some clear lessons for India. So for example, the Ukrainians publicly requested uh, some commercial space companies based in Western countries uh, to provide them real-time data for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance of Russian forces. And apparently that data has been provided. Uh, so, you know, it, it, there is a clear role for commercial uh, players in a conflict like this. And what does that mean internationally? Uh, can uh, India's adversaries, even those that are not major space powers like Pakistan, leverage uh, this uh, commercial space power to Im Im improve their own military effectiveness. Uh, you also saw, for example, uh, SpaceX once again uh, set up, uh, uh, basically provide Starlink antennas uh, uh, to Ukraine. And uh, apparently the Ukrainians are using uh, the Starlink satellite internet communication systems to coordinate, for example, uh, uh, drone strikes on Russian armor and apparently most recently on some small Russian naval vehicles. Now, uh, the question that arises in, in a situation like this is, uh, does that make uh, Starlink, for example, uh, a legitimate target for, uh, for the Russians? Uh, because it is apparently being used uh, for military purposes by the Ukrainians. Uh, so that, that's one part of the question, right? So when you have commercial entanglement from other countries in with a party in a conflict, what does that mean? Uh, there's also finding the question, for example, of the ubiquity of uh, the US GPS system. So the fact that, uh, for example, the Ukrainian forces are using American GPS, uh, once again, to coordinate their own military operations. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Uh, does that provide the US with a source of leverage in this conflict? Uh, do there are other Russians, for example, actually, you know, informally using GPS themselves because their own GLONASS system uh, is facing troubles of their own. GLONASS is, is the Russian satellite navigation system. So, uh, you know, all of these concerns do arise. And uh, for India, it does have implications for how it thinks about space power, how it thinks about the role of uh, the commercial space industry, uh, and uh, what it means for you know, when you have entanglement uh, between uh, commercial players from other third parties uh, and the party you're in conflict with. So the increasing focus on the Indo-Pacific has also prompted more space activity. There is talk of a spillover of India-China rivalry into space, uh, with it soon emerging as an important domain of Sino-Indian competition. 
Apart from this, we also saw at the first ever physical summit of uh, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or Quad, which consists of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, where the leaders of the member states committed to new avenues of cooperation on outer space issues. What are your thoughts on these developments, and what does it mean for uh, the regional architecture? Sure. So, uh, on uh, China and India, well, so, you know, 20 years back, uh, the difference between um, China and India's space industry was much smaller. Uh, China's pulled ahead. Uh, so China has, uh, you know, it launches many more satellites every year than India. Uh, we've seen uh, the the rise of a commercial space industry uh, in China. Uh, and that's actually, you know, it's involved not just in things like uh, downstream, but actually involved in uh, satellite launches and so on. Uh, and uh, you've also seen uh, in China, for example, uh, the Chinese have basically matured their Baidu uh, global uh, navigation system. So uh, the Chinese are able to provide a lot more uh, public goods uh, to countries in the region uh, than India can. So it can both launch satellites specifically for other countries. Uh, of course, India also does this, but the Chinese can do this at, at a larger scale. Uh, and, you know, the very fact that, for example, people in countries in, in India's extended neighborhood in the Indian Ocean region uh, can potentially use uh, China's Baidu navigation system for their regular commercial purposes uh, means that China rather than India is the provider of those public goods. Uh, now, in terms of uh, the regional architecture with uh, the Quad, it, so I, I think it's, it's a great development that the Quad has actually mentioned. Uh, space as an important sector in which there needs to be an ongoing dialogue. Uh, you know, on the Quad, so the Quad is obviously India, uh, the US, Australia, and Japan. Now, India is the odd one out in the Quad in the sense that the other three countries are uh, treaty allies of each other. And uh, it's much easier for those three countries, uh, for example, to share technology between each other. Uh, but India is still indispensable in this grouping. So I think there are a few things that we can do. Uh, to me, the most ambitious uh, plan could be to actually have uh, what uh, my boss Nitin Pai calls uh, bubbles of trust. So, you know, the one area in which my colleagues are looking at creating bubbles of trust within the quad is semiconductors. I think we can do something potentially similar in space. Uh, we can uh, have create bubbles of trust for uh, technology sharing, uh, sharing of uh, knowledge and expertise uh, between the quad states uh, in order to develop uh, and encourage the commercial space industries in these countries and also uh, encourage investment. Uh, we're seeing Australia has actually, uh, again, started an initiative bilater bilaterally with India uh, to encourage uh, Australian investments in India's commercial space sector. So, you know, the groundwork for this is being laid. So so I don't think it's all that uh, far-fetched. I think it's something that can be done. Uh, besides that, I think the Quad needs to have an ongoing strategic dialogue on space. Uh, what we've been seeing uh, really since 2007 uh, is uh, what I would call an ASAT renaissance. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a, a renewal of testing of kinetic uh, anti-satellite missiles. So this started with, uh, with China in 2007. America sort of responded though in a sort of deniable way. Then India test, tested its own ASAT missile in 2019, February, Mission Shakti. And last year, we've had the Russians test, again, a direct ascent anti-satellite missile. Now, all of these uh, tests are destructive tests. There have been other tests in between, but these destructive tests have created, you know, have added to the debris problem in low Earth orbit because they've basically hit uh, target satellites. 
And I think that this is an area in which uh, the Quad countries can look at what uh, the future holds. So uh, most recently, uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris uh, declared that the U.S. would not would not conduct such destructive uh, anti-satellite tests again. Uh, I think there needs to be a dialogue in India about what that means for India. Should India also, you know, uh, declare its own uh, moratorium on testing anti-satellite missiles destructively? Uh, you know. Uh, is there a space for, for India to do that? Uh, we need to have a strategic dialogue with the other Quad states about this. The other thing is, you know, besides the sort of kinetic destroy things, uh, sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, t- that type of space warfare, uh, a lot of space warfare uh, is likely to be uh, non-kinetic. So that's likely to involve directed energy weapons like uh, lasers, uh, high-powered microwaves, as well as uh, just electronic jamming and uh, cyber attacks. So. Uh, you know, what are the rules and regulations uh, that we should have in place uh, to govern, uh, you know, uh, responsible behavior in outer space? Uh, I think that this is something, you know, for example, we, we are seeing UN-sponsored open-ended working groups uh, that is, you know, that, that is slated to begin discussing this uh, later this month, May. Uh, I think that it's important that the Quad states uh, develop an ongoing strategic dialogue about what constitutes responsible behavior in space. Uh, w- look at where they can come up with common negotiating positions, and also, you know, discuss where they differ and why they differ on those issues, and, and f- try to work out those differences. Uh, because the Quad states all, and the reason I'm saying this is simply because the Quad states do share a common concern about China and Chinese behavior in space, uh, and it is in their p- interest to develop. Uh, common negotiating positions uh, that uh, basically restrain uh, potential Chinese aggression in space. Well, thank you so much, Aditya, for being here and sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get latest updates on our publications, events, and podcasts on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. 